Good morning. Morning, Sean. Praise the Lord for another Sunday. Uh, we can worship Him. We are going to continue our series through the Song of Songs. You know, last week I started in a light-hearted manner uh, because this topic is quite intense. Uh, but I don't mean to take these issues lightly because I know for some of us, you know, it's triggering. Um, it could be painful or some of us feel this sense of shame, uh, especially those of us who have been through abuse. And so certainly I don't intend to take this uh, topic flippantly. Uh, at the same time, you have to know, um, I, as you know, right, I'm committed to preach the scripture. Uh, usually I don't like to preach topical sermons, even though they're easier to do. I'd rather pre- preach through a book so that if you forget what I say, at least you remember what the Bible book uh, is saying. And so a commitment to preach the text is not just to preach the content, but also the mood and atmosphere, which means if the text condemns, I will condemn. If it comforts, I will comfort. In this case, it celebrates uh, sex. And so I'll definitely preach it from a more a positive angle. Of course, you know, if any issues, your, your issue is not with me, but the Word of God. So, um, last week we talked about first anticipation, right? Uh, and a reminder that we, what we pursue is obedience and not uh, virginity. We pursue purity out of obedience because of a response of the gospel. And in case you have any misunderstanding, because I was asked after, so do we actually have to wait? Uh, certainly you do. Because of, we want to respond in obedience to the gospel. Uh, then chapter 3 is actually the wedding itself. Today we're looking at chapter 4 and 5, which is uh, the consummation of the wedding and the marriage. And then next week will be some issues between them and there's reconciliation. And then finally, uh, three weddings and a funeral. So, let us... Uh, Commit this time to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we want to just pray and commit the time to you. Pray for Holy Spirit to convict our hearts that we'll see Christ lifted up and you glorified. May we allow your love to pour into our hearts, especially the hidden areas, Lord, so that they will not fester to become a can of worms. But we allow your love to pour forth your gospel to redeem. It will be a can of rainbows. I thank you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what do you consider as priceless? Family, health, happiness. Now, what about virginity? Now, some of us consider it sacred, and so we'll probably recoil uh, from the idea that if you were to give it away to a complete stranger or even sell it, but not so for a 19-year-old model based in the U.S. called Giselle. She sold her virginity for 2.5 million euros. It was held on the, the auction was held on this website and the bids came flying in. The highest bid came from a businessman from Abu Dhabi, the second highest, an actor in Hollywood. And she said, you know, I'm set up for life. I can go to college debt-free, buy a nice house and travel the world. And it's not just about easy money. I'm a feminist. And so my body belongs to me. Who I want to have sex with is my business. Moreover, most people end up regretting their first time anyway. Now, what do you think? And it's not just a foreign phenomenon. Like locally, we have some websites, you know, where young college girls are looking for sugar daddies. Basically, they offer them as their girlfriends 
you know, and they say that they can pay for their college and then live the luxurious lifestyle. You know, friends, if we believe we are no better than animals and if sex is just an appetite, then I think what they think is totally pragmatic. And so today we want to consider what is the purpose of sex? Especially from songs uh, five, uh, 4 and 5. Songs chapter 4 and 5. We look at the text. What does the text say? Secondly, the theology. And thirdly, today, how is it relevant? So, uh, the text, the theology, and then uh, for today, how is it relevant? And so before we open uh, Songs 4, there are some preliminary, uh, preliminary issues I didn't get to address uh, last week. First, um, some people claim the songs uh, is a compilation of eight love songs. Okay? Uh, it could be. But however it is, the eventual edition, what we have in the Bible, is so specifically structured. I showed you this last week, the chiastic structure. It is meant to be read uh, in this narrative, the romance, courtship, the wedding, and what happens after. So regardless of how it was compiled, eventually, in the form that it comes to us, is in this version. Secondly, someone says that, you no, know, it's about the Shulamite woman, the lover, her boyfriend, and then Solomon, the king, who comes and steals her away. Again, I said last week, the rapid interchange of the second person and third person, means you and he, uh, is a way in the ancient Near Eastern poetry to bring out the richness of the emotions. So it's not a third party and Solomon came around to steal them. Finally, um, last, last week, someone actually approached me after the sermon and says, you know, Solomon has a thousand wives and concubines. How is he qualified to write about faithful love? And I thought, he has a thousand wives and concubines and if it's about sex, then who else is more qualified? But on a more serious note, when we read Hebrew wisdom, which is, you know, like Job, Psalms, poetry, uh, Proverbs, they intentionally leave the author and the context a bit vague. For example, in the Psalms, right? We don't always know who is the author. We don't always know what is the context. So that the people that come after, including us, we can step in the shoes of the psalmist and pray. And so on this topic on biblical sexuality, it does not matter who the author is. What matters is in this form given to us, help, helping us to understand what's God's design for sex. Okay, so the whole stuff, I say if you don't understand, it's okay, okay? You're just going to the text. You see, the reason I do this is, um, after 10 years of preaching in the US, you know, in the US, sermons are 25 minutes, short, sharp, memorable. It's not too difficult. But after I left the church, I asked myself this question. After 10 years of preaching, huh, did the people upgrade themselves in biblical knowledge and theology? You know? And so when I came back, I was determined not to repeat the same thing. That at least after listening, right, you understand the Bible a bit more. You understand a bit more about theology because it affects all our decisions in life. All of us do theology. It's whether you're aware or not. It's whether the theology is informed by the Bible or informed by the culture. And also, usually I like to throw in some apologetics because these are the questions you face in your workplace to your colleagues. We do not reason from the Bible when we talk to people who do not believe in Jesus, right? Because they do not accept the authority of Scripture. Instead, we reason to the Bible Reason from life, from culture, from philosophy, and then we show them why the Bible is relevant. And so as I preach through, um, you know, I guess these are some things I do if, you, if you're not aware after so many years. But anyway, if you don't understand the whole lot, it's okay. Let's look at the text. First, the text, sex binds covenant ties. The structure of what we're looking at today. 
It is a prelude to lovemaking. There's observation of the body, then he stops at the first object of his desire, and then there's a lot of exclamation, and then he continues to describe the second object of his desire. And then verse 415 is the consummation of the marriage. Last week we saw, it's the woman describing her desires. And then halfway through she says, no, don't, al- don't arouse love before it's time. And then she imagines about her wedding. Chapter 3 is the wedding itself, and then chapter 4 is where we find ourselves today. <laughs> How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your ear is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes which have come up from their washing, all of which bears twins, and not one among them has lost her young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your temples are a slice of pomegranate behind a veil. Your neck is like a tower of David built with stones, row of stones on which are hung a thousand shields, all the round shields of the mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Until the cool of day, when the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You're all together beautiful, my darling. There's no blemish in you. Now, what is Solomon saying about his bride? If you take away all the metaphors, it's something like that. <laughs> then Hart tries to read it literally, you know, and tries to make sense of it. Okay, but clearly it cannot be like that, right? So let me try to explain. Um, you see, verse 1 is how beautiful, verse 7 is how beautiful. It's a book and it's a rhetorical device, meaning he's trying to describe her. And he's taking his time. He says, your eyes, she's veiled up, are like doves, it's alive. Your hair is like the goats of Gilead. Goats of Gilead are black and when they come, jump down the mountain, it's like cascading hair. And then, he unveils her, so he looks at her teeth. He's amazed by her teeth because, you know, back then, don't have dental health, you know? I remember it was the army days, right? I went to Taiwan, you know, and then along the road, there's those very pretty ladies selling betel nut, no ping tang, don't know what. Uh, and then they come by the car, they look really good, until they smile, right? It's like, oh! <laughs> the better don't smile. Because all oh, their teeth is rotten because of the betel nut. And so back then, there's no dental health, so you know, you have nice teeth. He's saying that, you have not lost any of your young means. They're all in rows, okay? So good dental health is important. Your lips are like scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples are a slice of pomegranate. You see, again, the word pomegranate. So just a clue, okay? Every time pomegranate appears, it means something sexual. Your neck is like the Tower of David. Why is he saying that? Because she's naked and unashamed. She's unflinching as he undresses her. He describes her and she doesn't turn away. She's not shy. If you don't believe, the next verse he says, your breasts are like fawns, gazelles feeding among the lilies. And the imagery is this, a field of lilies, right? And you imagine small deers, two of them bending over. And then of course, they have a little tails popping up. Now what imagery is that? You imagine yourselves, okay? And then he describes it further. He says, oh, it's the mountain of myrrh, hill of frankincense. This is parallelism. Alright? Again, ding ding, the two words, myrrh and frankincense. These are spices that are, are, are rare. And so, every time you see myrrh and frankincense in the book of songs, the songs, your light bulb should go on, okay? Something is going on. And then he closes it. He says, you're all together beautiful. Gary Smalley, he wrote the book, uh, Men Are Like Microwave and Women Are Like Crock Pot. He said, as far as I'm concerned, he, Solomon, he's doing it right. Men can have sex just about any time and appreciate it in just about any form. 
However, for the woman, she heats up slowly and needs time and tenderness to ready for sexual intercourse. Then he continues. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. May you come with me from Lebanon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. You made my heart beat faster, yada, yada, yada. So I told you, when he stops there, the first object of desire, he just expresses and exclaims. And then he moves on. Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments are like the fragrance of Lebanon. Your garden locked is my sister, my bride. A rock garden locked is spring sealed up. Previously, he had already described her lips and mouth. But now, he's kissing her. Now, there's taste. So, we're engaged with all our five senses, sight, hearing, touch, smell, you know, even taste. And he stops at the next object of his desire. What is this locked garden? Rock garden. Spring sealed. Then he says, your shoots are like orchids of pomegranates. Wow, if, if one slice of pomegranates already turned him on, this is a whole orchid of pomegranates. With choice fruits, henna and nut plants, nut and saffron and calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense and myrrh. Ding, ding. Something's happening. Along with all the finest spice. Now, previously it's a slice of pomegranate and then only frankincense and myrrh. Now it's everything. It's a whole orchid of pomegranates. There's nut, saffron, calamus, all kinds of spices. He's now describing his ultimate, the place of his ultimate sexual desire. What is it? Your garden spring, a well of fresh water streams flowing from Lebanon. She is ready. She is ready for intercourse. And she, he's describing her. Now, if you look at Proverbs 5, all right? Drink, uh, the wo- woman of wisdom is warning the sun, right? It says, drink from your own cistern, fresh water from your own well. Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed, the rejoice in the wife of your youth, as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. The idea of spring and well in uh, ancient Near Eastern texts always refers to sexuality. Alright, so he's describing her body, first her breasts, secondly he describes to the place of his ultimate desire with all his exclamations and then suddenly she responds. She says, Awake, O north wind, come, the wind of the south. Make my garden breathe out fragrance. Let its spices be wafted abroad. May my beloved come into his garden and let it eat its choice fruits. He's saying she's full of spice and, and, and she's ready, you know, and then now she says, Come. All the spices, all the fragrance, come, come into your garden and eat all the fruits. What is she saying? She's inviting him for intercourse. And then finally, he says, I have come, I have gathered, I have eaten, I have drunk. You know, in the Hebrew, the verbs goes boom, 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 boom. Decisive, possessive. He takes, he takes her. He says, I, she invites him in. He says, I come into my garden. I've gathered my myrrh. I've eaten your honeycomb. I've drunk my wine. And he gives a summary. Eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply, O lovers. Wow, very quiet, you know. You feel very stressed, is it? You feel stressed? Imagine how I feel. <laughs> hey, but if you have any issues, it's not with me, it's with the Bible. Why is this in the Bible? I also don't know, okay? I asked many times, why is this in the Bible? Because it's there, I have to explain. 
You've never seen it like that, right? Why is she calling for wind of the north and south? <laughs> Again, that's your issue, not my issue, okay? And so they consume it, the marriage. And then something happens. You know, then you fast forward to another day. Oh, before that. Tim Keller says, sex has covenant-making power. In the midst of sexual passion, you naturally want to say extravagant things, such as, I will always love you, even if you're not married. You may find yourself very quickly feeling marriage-like ties, coming, feeling like the other person has obligations to you. But the person does not, if you're not married. He does not even have to call you back. This incongruity leads to jealousy and hurts. So if you have sex outside of marriage, you will have to steel yourself against sex's power to soften your heart toward another person and make you more trusting. The problem is that eventually sex will lose its covenant-making power for you, even if you're married one day. Ironically, sex outside of marriage eventually works backward, making you less able to commit and trust another person. Sex binds covenant ties. The sexual relationships forms these emotional bonds. And what Keller is saying is that if you do it outside the bounds of marriage, you feel those feelings. So the only way to overcome them is to harden your heart. And one day, even if you're married, you will not feel those feelings anymore. Sex binds covenant ties. And then something happens between them. There's the, a gap. It fast forward, she describes, it says, I was asleep, but my heart was awake. Oh, voice. My beloved was knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is drenched with dew, my locks with the damp of the night. Somehow it's outside knocking on the door. I've taken off my dress. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I dirty them again? My beloved extended his hands through the opening and my feelings were aroused for him. The what? How is she aroused by him putting his hand in the opening? And then I arose to open my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh and my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the boat. Ding, ding, myrrh again. Something is happening here, right? And then it says, I opened to my beloved but my beloved has turned away and had gone. My heart went out to him as he spoke. I searched for him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he did not answer me. So what's happening here? To understand this, we must understand firstly, uh, euphemism, which is a nicer way of saying something. Secondly, double entendre, which means there are two interpretations to the text. Um, but one of them is more risque. So right here, we're saying that he's knocking on the door, he wants to come in, she doesn't. Then after that, she opens, he's gone, and then she went searching for him. Okay, but when we understand it, you know, as I said, when myrrh happens, when the word like arouse happens, certainly it means something else. Okay, most likely is that and another time after their marriage, she wants to be intimate, but she rejects him for many reasons. What is my dress, my, my feet? The word hen in the book of Isaiah actually describes the male sexual organ. Okay. Uh, so it's a possible interpretation here. So he, he desires to be intimate. She rejects him and then she turns around. But then, you know, he's gone. And friends, you know, this happens more often than we like to admit. When we try to be intimate as a couple, it could be the husband or the wife. It's difficult. Too busy, too tired, not in the mood, not available. And then it leads to misunderstandings. It leads to conflicts. And it just becomes bigger and bigger if we choose not to talk about it. 
And then she goes out to search for him and then she describes him. Last week we saw he, uh, there was a description, right? So now it's her turn. She says, My dear, I give the message version so it's easier, okay? Don't need to. It's a paraphrase. My dear lover glows with health, red-blooded, radiant. He's one in a million. There's no one quite like him. My golden one, pure and untarnished, with raven black curls tumbling across his shoulders. His eyes are like dove, soft and bright, but deep set, brimming with meaning like wells of water. His face is rugged, his beard smells like sage, his voice, his words, warm and reassuring, fine muscles ripple beneath his skin, quiet and beautiful. His torso is like a work of a sculpture, hard and smooth as ivory. He stands tall like a cedar, strong and deep-rooted, a rugged mountain of a man, aromatic with wood of stone. His word are kisses, his kisses are words. Everything about him delights me, thrills me through and through. That's my lover, that's my man, dear Jerusalem sisters. Wow. His words are like kisses. Last week I said, right, he's a smooth talker. And then his kisses are like words, he's probably a good kisser. And of course, this is a paraphrase, okay? In verse 14, the words are, His hands are like rods of gold. His abdomen is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. The word carved ivory is ivory tusks. Again, we can choose to see as describing like the statue of David, six packs. Or it could be uh, describing the male sexual organ. And so she describes him in detail. She's looking for him. And so we ask ourselves, what is our view of sex? The text shows us that sex binds covenant ties. A marriage is a covenant, not a contract. There's no ending point, there's no condition like a contract. You fulfill the conditions and that's the end. What binds the covenant is a sexual relationship. And that is why God invented it. Now let's do some theological reflection. A theological reflection is not very cheap, okay? Just take some Bible verses that talk about this topic and we see what it says. And so in theology, of course, we go back to Genesis. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. God could have created female, female, male, male, but he chose male and female. He created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on earth. And then finally, he says, God saw all that he made. And behold, it was very good. And that was evening and morning the sixth day. So as we reflect on creation, we see firstly that sex is good and pleasurable. Every day God created, He said, tough, 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 good, good, good. Last day, He said, mod tough. What's mod tough? What's very good? The creation of man and woman, the creation of sexuality. It is good and pleasurable. When we look at the Song of Songs, certainly after reading uh, verse, uh, chapter 4 and 5, you cannot get away from the idea that sex is dirty. No, it's good and pleasurable. The question is, what is our view of it? How do you view sex? Within the bounds of marriage, now we do not want to be crass about this subject, but within the bounds of marriage, as God has designed, is meant to be good and pleasurable. Francine Winslow, she wrote this article titled, My Journey um, to the Goodness of Sex. She said, the culture tells us that sex before marriage is hot. Sex after marriage is stale. And sex after children is just plain rare. But what's missing from this narrative is the importance of the emotional bonds that are formed. 
Then she added, I grew up in a Bible-believing church, have served in the church since I was young, but I entered marriage with a poor theology of sex. My view of sex was disjointed. I didn't see it as a divine gift, but a dirty duty. That it was my duty to fulfill my husband's needs. But in the marriage, God began to redeem this area of my life. That when a man and woman have sex, the hormones produced is like an emotional glue. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have problems in our marriage, but it's better to deal with those problems from a position of oneness than not. See, Christopher West, who is a uh, Catholic theologian, he wrote the book, The Theology of the Body. He says, regular sex is like uh, regularly renewing our wedding vows. If sex is binds the wedding covenant, then having it during our marriage is like renewing our wedding vows. It's just like God making a covenant with His people, if Israel. Regularly, they come before Him to renew the covenant, right? To offer sacrifices, they observe the feast. And then she added, she says, you know, in this whole process, she realized that sex is like a uh, sacrament, like baptism and the Lord's Supper, a physical symbol for a spiritual reality. That spiritually we are bounded, spiritually we are bounded to God. So the question we ask ourselves is, how do we view sexuality? If we do not view it as good and pleasurable, why? Friends, if we do not talk about this issue, you know, I don't like to talk about it too, you know, to so many people. Maybe you, you, drink, you tell me you go and drink coffee, it's easier, right? But to a crowd, why do we have to talk about it? Because if we do not talk about it, where do we get our information from? Our peers who are no better informed than us. The internet, the culture. And we keep it hidden, it becomes truly like a can of worms. But when it's open, open to the power of the gospel, open to, 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 to another person, it becomes a can of rainbow, a rainbow of hope. So sex is not just good and pleasurable. Second, it's mutual and complementary. When God created, He created day and night, heaven and earth, man and woman. They are complementary. Song of Songs, the description interchange between the man and the woman, you know, shows this complementarity. Even their parts fit. And that is the issue with same-sex relationships. See, Jennifer was 10 years old when she first um, discovered pornographic materials in her brother's room. It, she felt disgusted at first, but she was curious. And so over time, it created her first uh, masturbatory experience. She grew up in a family that was emotionally distant. And she felt that she, she was seeking for something. She grew up in church and she knew, she said, I knew that I have to be chased, but I was a teenager and my hormones were raging. And so soon that became a daily affair. The more she used pornography, the more she said she felt less than because she could not compare with those images. So at 16 years old, her best friend, her best relationship with her girlfriend turned sexual. They had a codependent relationship. She said each of us needed something for another. And while there was pleasure, there was something missing. And soon the relationship turned abusive. And I thought, why? In the Bible, God describes sex as beautiful. But why are we feeling this emptiness? 
She says, I went to the internet and it affirmed my decision to explore my sexuality. But the more we did it, the emptier I felt. Now, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a scientist. I'm not here to tell you whether we were born this way or we're not born this way. But I can tell you this. We are all born sinners. We are all born this way. I have my issues. I have my heterosexual issues. So God isn't calling like homosexuals to be, to be heterosexuals. God is calling heterosexuals and homosexuals to be holy. It does not matter how we feel. As Christ followers, when we are redeemed by the gospel, when we understand the love of God, friends, we respond. We respond to Him if He has lordship in our lives. And we have to talk about this because, you know, by the time, if we don't talk about it, you know, we struggle. And, and most of us sitting here, because we don't talk about it, we are all struggling. Who isn't struggling with this? We talk about prophecy and the coming of Christ. And you think about it, uh, in a year, how often do you think about that? Christmas and Easter. But one day, how many times do you think about sex? You know, some research I read years ago says seven times a day at least. And so if you're always thinking about it, we need to be biblically informed. Sex is good and pleasurable, it's mutual and complementary. And lastly, it's relational and thrives within the marriage. Why did God create Eve? Because Adam was all alone and it was not good. When he had sex with his wife, the Bible said he knew Eve, yada, knew to know is relational, it's not just about the, the physical oneness. In the Song of Songs, we see the bride and the groom, right? They go through the whole uh, period of courtship, of knowing each other is relational. And friends, that is the problem with pornography and masturbation. It reduces a fellow image bearer to a sexual object. That's all we see because it's really just about me. There's no relation. Ricardo and Cindy's marriage was almost devastated because of his addiction to pornography. Both of them were leaders in a campus ministry. They were aware of his problems, but they thought that if they got married, he had a real sex partner, the problem would go away. But it did not. Instead, they ended up in the pastor's office. And the pastor's wife asked him, he says, I don't understand. You have such a beautiful wife beside you, warm, vivacious, why do you need to use pornography? And he answered very honestly. He said, because she's complicated. She's unavailable sometimes. She's too angry, too moody. You know, not in the mood. And when I have sex with her, I have to think about her pleasure. But in pornography, it's all about me. I'm always super attractive and the women are always responsive. Now that's an honest answer, but it gives us a glimpse into the issue pornography. It's all about me. We think we do it this way, you know, there'll be pleasure, but in real life, when you actually try to have sex with your wife or husband, it doesn't turn out the same way. Years ago, someone shared with me because he is addicted to pornography. You know, when he tries to, and when he got married and tries to have sex with his wife, he says he just cannot uh, reach his climax. And so, pornography shapes our view of our spouses. And it happens both ways, you know, not just men. I remember Kay Warren, the wife of Rick Warren, you know, that the, the, the well-known pastor. She shared about 
how she struggled with porn and, and masturbation and how it almost caused them to lose their marriage. Sex is good. Sex is pleasurable. Sex is mutual. Sex is relational. But the truth of the matter is, most of us don't see it that way now. Because, friends, we live in a hyper-sexualized culture. Like it or not, we have been exposed, we are struggling, and to most of us, if we don't talk about it, we keep it secret, nobody knows, and we give the devil a foothold in our lives. But when we allow the gospel to redeem the area of our life, when we come clean to another brother or sister in Christ, an accountability partner, when we maybe need to go for counselling, there is redemption. It does not need to be a, a can of worms because there is redemption in Christ. Genesis says both the men were naked and unashamed. And the pastor's voice, I said, nakedness is not just without clothes. If you wear a swimwear in the beach, you don't feel awkward. But if you wear a swimwear here, how will you feel? <laughs> don't try that, okay, Sean? <laughs> how would you feel? Why? You're wearing the same thing, right? It's because... People can see you, you cannot see them. And that's vulnerability. To be naked and unashamed is to be known and totally loved. But because of sin, that is not possible. Adam and Eve hid from themselves, hid from God. God asked them, where are you? He says, you know, I heard your sound, I was afraid because I was naked. But God provided redemption. The garments of skin implies that He sacrificed animals, a life or a life to cover up Adam and Eve. And friends, today we have redemption. We can be naked and unashamed because of Christ. To be naked and unashamed is to be known, totally known and fully loved. But you know, there's a little voice in our heads that tells us that is not possible. No one will love you if they really know you. I can either be loved and not known or known and not loved. But because of the gospel, we can be loved and known. Because Christ hung upon the cross naked and He took all our shame. And so friends, we can stand naked and unashamed before God and before one another. Of course, I'm not asking you to be BFF with everybody, but along your spiritual journey of following Christ, certainly there will be people who journey with you who can listen to your story. In Christ, there is redemption. Because sex is a theological signpost pointing to the truth that we were created to be one with God, fully known and knowing, given over to Him in love forever. It metaphorically reveals our destiny as the bride of Christ to be filled by the bridegroom. That one day we'll stand before Him, we've been redeemed, naked and unashamed. The reality is most of us struggle with the area of sexuality. That is why Paul says to the Corinthians, Corinthians are the most, one of the most gifted bunch of the church that Paul started. Okay? They have capable people, very gifted people, but he talks about a lot about sexual immorality in the book. He says, flee from immorality. Every sin you commit is outside your body, but immoral sins is against your body. There is an addiction. It's create, it causes something on our bodies, an addiction is not easy to break out. Last week after I preached, uh, somebody approached me and he insisted that I have to share this. He says the pain uh, of, of, of addiction. You know, this brother is a, is a grown man, okay? He said that he was abused when he was young, sexually, by a neighbour, together with his sisters. 
So he grew up think, leading a promiscuous life, thinking that this is normal. He said he will have sex with women, young girls and not just have, you know, insert and just not move because he didn't find it pleasurable, but it was something he did. Until in his late teens, he became a Christian. He said he abstained until he got married. And upon marriage, there was, he, there was some issues and he couldn't have sex with his wife. And so for the next 15 plus years, he struggled. He says, can you imagine my frustration? And every once or twice in a year, he will fall when you go on a business trip. He does this and that. And he feels so guilty. He, he, he said he had tried all ways. You know, he's actively serving in church, but he came to a point where he says, God, I give up. I just cannot. At the time, he said, he heard God tell him, just be holy. And so the point he wanted me to make, he says, then over the next 20 years, he finally came out of it. Of course, he attended the different kind of uh, counseling and, and groups, support groups. The point is, that he was trying to make is that, you know, when you're caught in sexual sin, it's an addiction. It's not easy to break out. But friends, if we kept it hidden, it becomes a can of worms. But when we're willing to open it to the light of the gospel, to somebody else in Christ, we can have a rainbow of hope. There is redemption in Christ. And that is why Paul said just before this, he says, don't you know, you're, you're those people who do not come to the kingdom of God, they're fornicators. Fornicators meaning people who are single and have sex outside of marriage. Okay? It's a catch-all for all sexual sins. Adulterous, meaning you're married but you have sex with someone outside of your spouse. Effeminate, cross-dressers, homosexuals, same-sex attracted. Such were some of you. Not such is. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. And that is our hope. That is our hope of redemption. It's not that we don't struggle, but we are fighting not for our justification, but from our justification. We are saved, we are redeemed, and because of that, we want to pursue holiness. It's not just fleeing from sin, but it's fleeing towards God, discovering the beauty of God. And because there is redemption in Christ, that is why for Francine Winslow, she said she began to learn about the goodness and beauty of sex. Because there's redemption in Christ, Ricardo joined an accountability group and began working his way to purity. Because there's redemption in Christ. For Jennifer, she could not get out of a same-sex relationship. But God did something. God brought her overseas. She went to a foreign country to study. She was all alone. She went back to church and she found God again. Rather, God found her again. She says in the serving, in fellowship, in understanding God's love renewed, she found freedom. She found the joy and intimacy that she was seeking for. But she said, when I think about my future, I didn't dare to think about romance and marriage because of a same-sex attraction. But God had other plans. She came back to Singapore, met a godly young man, fell in love, got married, and today she is a pastor's wife. Now she gave this testimony in a conference of hundreds, over, of, hundreds of pastors. Okay, so it's not my story. I'm not saying that people with same-sex attraction, you can get out of it. I'm saying that God has called us all to be holy, to follow Him, 
And for, for us, when we struggle with other sins, heterosexual sins, we have our issues too. But there is redemption in Christ. Friends, you are not your sexual history. Whatever we have done is redeemed in the gospel. What we need is to come together naked and unashamed to pursue holiness together because none of us are perfect. Let us pray. Lord, I want to give thanks to you once again. Even as we open your word, we are hopeful. Lord, many of us sitting here, we have struggled with sexual sins for a long time. Maybe it's something in our past. Maybe it's that we're unable to forgive, unable to let go. Maybe it's something that's ongoing. But in you, there's freedom. So I pray that you help us to come before you naked and unashamed and to be willing to seek help, to speak to somebody, to expose this darkness so that the evil one doesn't have a foothold in our lives. I'll give us some minutes to respond to the Lord in prayer and then the worship team will lead us.